baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Uh, what lessons can we learn from the baptism of, our, of Jesus? Uh, that's what we're going to go through as we see this text. The first thing we want to see in your outline, if you want to fill this out, the first thing we want to see is the arrival of Jesus. The arrival of Jesus. When we're looking at this, it's a unique time. Our Lord had been born and he had walked on this earth for 30 years. We call these the silent years. We really don't have much information, have a little bit, but not much information about his life prior to this moment. But this is a huge transition moment in the life of our Lord, as we'll see as we go through here. The first thing we see in verse 13, Jesus comes from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Now, immediately, we should have some red flags here. You and I get baptized as a sign of forgiveness of sin. We're all sinners. Jesus, on the other hand, was sinless. There was no reason for him to be baptized because he was not a sinner. And yet, as an act of his will, he chose to be baptized. Now, remember, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, which means you repent of your sin. You turn from your sin. And then baptism is a picture that you have turned from your sin. Well, Jesus didn't need to do that because there was no sin in his life. So he comes to John, he says, and remembers other people being baptized as well. And Jesus just joins the crowd and he says, I need to be baptized. Well, John the Baptist is a unique prophet character. And he has the response that you and I should have. He says to Jesus, some resistance here. John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Now, in this phrase, we need to pause here for just a minute. John didn't know everything about Jesus. We see in another gospel that John knew who he was because the dove descended upon him. But there was something unique about Jesus that John saw that made John look at Jesus with reverence. He's having a baptism of repentance, but when he sees Jesus... He says to Jesus, look, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? The first thing we see in this text that you and I must understand is there must be a holy reverence for Jesus. We, we tend to go through life and we expect God to do stuff for us. And if he doesn't answer our prayers, then we get upset. But John the Baptist had this massive ministry. I mean, this was a, a unique fella coming out of the wilderness, eating unique food, dressed in unique clothes. He looks at Jesus and there's something distinct about Jesus. He's getting his eyes off of himself and his ministry. And when he looks at Jesus Christ, he has the kind of statement that everybody should have when we look at Jesus. And that's sheer holiness. I need to be baptized to you. I need to be touched by you. And yet you come to me. We really can't go any farther in the Christian life until we have this same attitude. You see, God doesn't make us Christians so that we'll get stuff from him. Oh, God blesses us, and aren't you glad that he does? But that's not the point of the Christian faith. We're getting a diluted gospel when we turn on the television show and says, uh, we see a TV preacher that says, God wants to give you all this stuff. Wait a minute. Christianity is God gives you himself. He gives you a relationship with him. But in that process of learning about who he is, there must be a reverence for God. 
We must see him for all of his holiness. He is sinless. John the Baptist is saying, you don't need to be baptized. You're sinless. And he's right. You see, it's easy to find faults in other people, but you can't find fault in Jesus. You just can't. So the starting point of our text today is when Jesus shows up, we got to recognize who he is. There's no sin with him. There's no darkness with him. There's no struggle with him. There's pure holiness. Do you see that? Do you see him for who he is? The Christian life starts when you get a true picture of who he is. John says, I need to be baptized you, and yet you come to me. And here's what Jesus says. Look what it says in verse 15. Jesus replied, here's the reason. Let it be so now, for it's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. You see, Jesus didn't make up his own rules. He chose the righteous path always. He always wanted to do the will of his Father. He always wanted to do the right thing, the righteous thing. But I want you to notice what he's doing here. He is humbling himself. If you go to Philippians chapter 2, he humbled himself and made himself a servant. Jesus is not only holy, he is not only to be revered, he is the perfect sinless son of God. God in the flesh. Different from everybody else. If he wanted to, he could call down legions of angels. And here we see him humbling himself. I dare say this is one of the hardest things for a human being to do. Because we're always right. And others are always wrong. And yet, here's someone who is always right, never wrong, and sinless. And he is choosing as an act of his will to humble himself because it is the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. He didn't have to be baptized, but he's choosing to be baptized because it's the right thing to do. He humbles himself. Notice why he says this. To fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? Look in your, in your outline on these notes. When Jesus said that his baptism would fulfill all righteousness, he declared that through his death, burial, and resurrection, he would fully satisfy all the requirements of a holy God, therefore enabling sinful man to be reconciled to God. In other words, when we baptize someone, we take them and we put them under the water, we bring them back up. It's a symbolic gesture of the death, burial, and resurrection. We're dead to sin, we're alive to Christ. And when Jesus is doing this, he's saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to know the Father, watch me die and be buried and rise again. That is the path of righteousness that you need to choose. That's the path of righteousness that you need to follow. You can't do it on your own. you got to come to the Father through me. That's the path of righteousness. You know, we've got to be very careful not to write our own rules for righteousness. The scriptures teach us the path of righteousness, and his name is Jesus. Everything he did is to fulfill the holy scriptures. Everything he did was to make sure he pleased his father by his choices and by his decisions. Sometimes he humbled himself, and the Bible says, even by death on a cross. He humbled himself by allowing himself to, to die on the cross. I wonder how many of us in here in this place would actually choose the path of humility because it's the right thing to do. Rather than winning, rather than moving in a direction where it's best for you, you're choosing to move in a direction that's best for him. Later, John the Baptist would say this. He would say, Jesus must become greater and I must become less. That's the path of humility. 
Years ago, the preachers used to talk about this. They'd write books on humility, the demotion of self and the elevation of Jesus, following the example of Christ. See, Jesus is humbling himself because he's putting himself in the hands of, of his Father, because he knows God's in control. I saw this illustration many, many years ago. There were some missionaries who went to the barbaric tribes of Western Europe to see whole nations converted to Christ. One thing they noticed is that there were certain barbarians that when they got baptized, they would keep their right hand out of the water. They'd go down and they'd keep the right hand out of the water and they'd say, what are you doing that for? And they said, because I want to have the right to kill my enemies if I want to. I want Jesus to have all of me except that one area of my life. And I think that's true of many of us. We, we want to Jesus baptize us because we want to be baptized because we want to go to heaven when we die. But we want to hang on to a particular area of our life because it's the right thing to do in our mind. But Jesus is saying, look, it's all of me or none of me. You've got to make the choice to follow me. And when you follow me, I become your Lord of all of you. Not most of you, not some of you, not 99% of you, all of you. Now, if Jesus can humble himself before us, can we humble ourselves before him? The Bible says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You want God's grace, his favor in your life? Humble yourself. Don't care who gets the glory. Make sure that you just obey what he tells you to do. Oftentimes you'll find yourself in difficult situations, but it's the situation that he puts you in because he wants you to learn how to humble yourself. And when God teaches you to humble yourself, you'll see his grace show up in his time and in his way. Point number two. Look it on your outline, please. We see the anointing of Jesus. After he arrives and he gets baptized, we see this really interesting verse of scripture. It says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and the Spirit of God descended like a dove lighting on him. And now keep in mind, this is, uh, there's a lot that we need to unpack here, but this is pretty cool. I've never seen a dove descend on somebody when they were baptized. But this is a unique situation. There's some symbolism in here that we need to pay attention to. Jesus is obeying to fulfill all righteousness. The tenets of baptism, John baptizes him in front of people so that uh, everybody knows that he's doing this. And God the Father and the Holy Spirit, you see the whole Trinity at work here. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he came up out of the water. And at that moment, I like Luke's version of this, it says heaven was torn open. It's like there's this great anticipation this great excitement. Heaven is so excited for this moment. It was predicated on Jesus' humbling himself. Sometimes heaven doesn't move until we humble ourselves. And as soon as he humbles himself and gets baptized, it's when he comes up out of the water. Sometimes God will let us come out of a situation before he shows up. We want him to show up before we get into the situation, or in the middle of the situation. But sometimes God will let you come out of the situation before he'll show up in, in usual ways. Jesus is coming up out of the water and notice what happens. The Spirit of God descends. Who can see the Spirit? So they use a symbolic gesture, a dove. And the dove was resting on him or lighting on him. Here we see the power of the Spirit 
coming on Jesus to anoint him for ministry. Up until this point in his life, Jesus didn't raise anybody from the dead. Jesus didn't do any miracles. We know very little about him. He didn't promote himself. You see the combination of the Spirit of God descending on the Son of God to glorify God. Now, in the Church of Jesus Christ, we get really excited about the Spirit of God, and there are some denominations that overdo it, and they perhaps do things to help the Holy Spirit out. But let's not minimize the power of the Spirit, because the Spirit of God can do things, and only the Spirit of God can do things that you and I cannot do. Only the Spirit of God can penetrate the human heart. Only the, human, only the Holy Spirit can penetrate sickness in man. Only the Holy Spirit can penetrate the difficult situations of life. And the devil fears the Spirit of God. But you cannot separate the Spirit of God from the Word of God. To be filled with the Spirit means to be filled with the Word, as Jesus was. To be filled with the Word means to be filled with the Spirit. You cannot separate one from the other. One of the great difficulties the church of Jesus Christ has had over the years is we've done just that. We've separated the Spirit of God from the Word of God. The Quakers, for example, said you need to be led by the inner light. You'd have this feeling or this warm fuzzy in your soul and you make a decision based on that. But they divorced that, that feeling from the Word of God. The Spirit is very powerful and He can do what He pleases. Uh, we want to tell Him what to do, but He doesn't allow us to do that. I was uh, reading in a book by uh, Tony Evans about one time, the great preacher from Dallas, Texas, he was preaching at a church not too long ago. And as he was preaching, a bunch of people were out there listening to him. And he said, a bird somehow got into the sanctuary. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe it was a dove. Now, I've heard stories about churches. I've even some, heard some about Antioch. Sometimes an animal will get into the sanctuary or an animal will get into the church. And uh, there's stories that are going about. Sometimes I, I read a story in a missionary unit about a pig that got in the church and was going underneath the pews. Well, here's a great preacher trying to preach. And it's kind of like a cell phone going off or something like that. There's a distraction. You know what happens when a bird starts coming into church. You're trying to preach and everybody's looking at that, at that bird. And you try to ignore it. You just try to keep preaching and try to keep going. But you can't. Because nobody's listening to anything you're saying. Not only that, Tony Evans said this bird decided to be a, a dive bomb bird. He wasn't just flying around. He was whoom, whoom. People were like, whoa, I don't want to get hit. I don't want to do anything like that. I'm just trying to get out of the way here. And as that bird's moving around doing all this kind of stuff, the preacher stops and he says, will somebody please get that bird and get it out of here? Catch the bird and get it out. Well, there were no volunteers. Did you volunteer to do something like that? There were no volunteers. And for a period of time, they just kind of waited while this dove just went in and out. And the way he, decided, he concluded the story was pretty cool. He said the bird eventually just came up right next to the pulpit and stood, or whatever they do, is walk right there on the stage. And Tony Evans said you can't scare a bird. You just got to approach him slowly. So he goes up and he... Slowly goes up and picks up the bird and gives it to somebody and they take it on out. And that was a story. Now you can sit there and go, why did God allow that bird to come into that church? Doesn't, know that that, doesn't God know that that preacher is preaching the word of God? And, and that would be a distraction? 
Why would God allow such a thing to happen? But, but I'm going to tell you something. The dove is a picture, a symbol of the Holy Spirit of God. And if you go to John chapter 3, Jesus defines the Holy Spirit's activity like the wind. And the wind blows where it pleases. You can hear its sound, but you can't see where it comes from or where it's going. You just know he's been there. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He shows up when he wants to. And not at our direction. And he shows up and does what he wants to do when he wants to do it. And the history of the church is filled with stories about God showing up by his spirit one day and massive revival being poured out on people, hearts being changed, not by human activity, not by human machinery, not by the best laid plans, but when the spirit of God descends, the power of God falls. So it's a beautiful prayer to pray. Lord, just may your spirit fall. Keep in mind, it's the Holy Spirit. It's not a spirit we get to manipulate. It's not a spirit we get to control. The Spirit of God moves as he pleases, on whom he pleases, when he pleases. He here descends upon the Lord Jesus Christ for baptism, to anoint him for ministry. I'll tell you an embarrassing story. When I was just learning about the Spirit of God, and I was a young youth pastor, and I didn't know anything, still may not know much, but I was, I was interested. I read something about the Holy Spirit, and uh, I said, well, I'm going to ask God to show me who the Holy Spirit is. And I'd get down on the side of my couch, and I would pray, Lord, just do something. May I feel your Spirit. May I see your Spirit. May I understand your spirit? And I just wait there, you know, just kind of waiting for the Holy Spirit to show up. And I, if I had a little warm fuzzy, yes, that's the Holy Spirit. Or, or if I had some kind of a thought come into my mind, yes, that's the Holy Spirit. And you, you're just so anxious to see the Spirit of God move. I'd, I'd go to conferences that talked about the Holy Spirit. Some were charismatic, some were Pentecostals, some... Some didn't want anything to do with the Holy Spirit because they'd seen so many misuses through the years. And you just get to the point where you realize something about the Holy Spirit. God's in control. God's in control. And He sends the Spirit when He pleases. He can withdraw the Spirit when He's grieved. But when God sends His Spirit, it's to allow people to know Him better, perhaps to be healed, perhaps to be touched. God can take the hardest of hearts and allow his spirit to just break on through and bring tenderness and healing and holiness to that heart. Chuck Swindoll also, the great preacher that lives in Texas, he also tried to study the spirit of God and the spirit of God is not something you can come to conclusions on by study. We study the scriptures, of course, but the combination of the scriptures and walking with the Lord. We're to walk by the Spirit, not sit and study the Spirit. It's a, it's a learning curve. We get to see how he's moving. He said, I've come to realize that the dimensions of the Spirit's ministry, I've never tapped into just by studying. But I've witnessed a dynamic power in the presence that I long to know more of firsthand. I now have questions and a strong interest of many of the things the spirit I once felt were settled. To put it plainly, I'm hungry for more of him. And I think that's the bottom line. Blessed are those who hunger 
and thirst for righteousness. What are you hungry for this morning? The Spirit is only going to lead you to Jesus. He's not going to lead you to self-gratification. The Spirit of God is only going to take you to holiness, not unholiness. The Spirit of God is only going to take you to righteousness, not unrighteousness. The Spirit of God is going to take you more deeply to trust in the Lord more. But here's the principle. We can't control him, but we can allow him to control us. But there's some dangers there in there when we ask the Spirit of God to control us. If you go to Matthew chapter 4, the Spirit of God fell upon Jesus. What happened? It was one of the very first things that happened to our Lord after the Spirit of God descended upon him. Matthew 4.1 says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. <laughs> we tend to think that the Holy Spirit takes all pain away, all suffering away, all frustration away. But here the Spirit of God is leading Jesus into the desert to be tempted by the devil. I wish that it was a pain-free life. I wish the Christian life was struggle-free. But it's not. But when the struggles come and the trials come, it's so that you and I will go deeper with the Lord and trust Him more when we can't fix it ourselves. The great preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, Without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are ships without the wind, branches without sap, and like coals without fire, we are useless. God is looking for someone who will let his spirit work in him and upon him and through him. Will you be that person? The third thing we see in our outline, we'll finish up with this, is the approval of Jesus. The approval. I love this. Look what it says in verse 17. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We see these same words in Matthew 17 in the transfiguration. This is my son, the fa- God the Father speaking from heaven. This is a pretty cool baptism. Don't you wish they were all like this? Voices coming from heaven, doves descending. Really beautiful picture. This is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. The, word, the words I am well pleased there are in the Greek tense, which means it's timeless. God has always been well pleased with the son. He is well pleased and he will be pleased with the son. In the same way you and I need to be well pleased with the son always. Secondly, notice what it says, a voice from heaven. God reveals himself through the word, through a voice. Sometimes we say, I want to see God's activity. God says, listen, listen to my voice and you'll hear what I'm saying to you. And then you act upon that. In John chapter 12, it said there was a a voice that came from heaven and a crowd that was there said that they thought it had thundered. See, we get so desensitized by this world that our spiritual antenna aren't up and we can't sense the promptings of the Holy Spirit, the voice of the Holy Spirit. But make no mistake about it, when you're choosing to please the Son, you're pleasing the Father. It's a, it's a way that God would want us to look at Jesus. I'll finish up with, with this, this illustration. Many years ago, there was a, a young man and he and his dad had a difficult relationship. And the son had, you know, the son would achieve certain good things and the father just would never be happy. You ever have a situation you hear about like that? The dad wouldn't be pleased with this. The dad wouldn't be pleased with this. The dad wouldn't be pleased with this. The son always tried to please the father, but the father was never pleased. In fact, 
One day the dad wrote his son a letter, and I'm going to read this letter to you. It's probably 50 years ago. You should be ashamed of your slovenly, happy-go-lucky, harem-scarum style of work. Never have I, this is a father to a son, never have I really received a good report on your conduct from your schoolmasters. You're always behind incessant complaints of a total one of application to your work. You have failed to get into this particular regiment. You've imposed on me fees that are expensive. Do not think that I'm going to take the trouble of writing you long letters for every failure you commit and undergo. I no longer attach the slightest weight to anything you say. If you cannot prevent yourself from leading an idle, useless, unprofitable life you have had during your school days, you will become a mere social wastrel, one of the hundreds of public failures, and you will just denigrate into a shabby, unhappy, and futile existence. And you will have to bear all the blame for such misfortunes. And then the biggest knife stabbed in the back of all, your mother sends her love. Your mother sends her love. You know, we shake our heads at that. And we say, what kind of a father would would write a letter like that to his son? That was Winston Churchill's dad. Winston Churchill's father treated his son that way. And with his son, he was not pleased. Aren't you glad that our God is not like that kind of a father? With his son, he is well pleased. And for you and for me, we also need to revere Jesus Christ and be well pleased with him. Because of him, his death, burial, and resurrection, we have a relationship with the father. Nothing should trump that. We should always hold that relationship with our Heavenly Father in high esteem. Just the other day, I was flipping through the internet and just just looking for sermon illustrations. And I don't know why, but I stumbled across a funeral of someone I'd never heard of, never seen. And it was a, a fairly young lady. And for some reason, somebody had put her funeral service on the internet. I'll be honest with you, I don't like that kind of stuff. I've, I've done funerals and I, too many funerals. But when I saw her picture, it just broke my heart. It just absolutely broke my heart. And I said to myself, for her, it's over. It's over. She's, she was a believer. She was with Jesus. And I said, you know, the stuff that you and I go through, does it really, really matter? Because that's what's worth it all. Knowing Jesus. It's about knowing him. And the ups and downs of life, it's about knowing him. When the good times come and the bad times come, it's about knowing him. And Jesus paid it all so that we might know him. Nothing else matters. It just doesn't matter. All men are like grass and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he be glorified. Let's pray. 
Gracious Father, you are a good and holy God. And Lord, we are so thankful for your kindness to us. Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that he humbled himself, that he chose to be baptized, that he chose to become obedient even unto death. And Lord, I just thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to talk about him today. And I pray that the words that went forward on the power of your spirit might go into the deepest crevices of every heart in this place. Lord, you speak to different people in different ways, but I pray that whatever you're speaking to folks, that they'll be responsive and reverent to the spirit of God's activity in their lives, even now or in the days to come. But above it all, may you be praised and glorified and honored. If there's anyone here that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, I pray you'll speak to their heart. Lord, if there's anyone here that you're speaking about uh, becoming part of this church family, or if you're speaking about some particular issue in their lives, I pray you'll make that very clear and known to them. Father, our heart's desire is to see your activity in our midst. We're careful to give you the praise. For it's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.